Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for June 27th, 2018. I decided I should start saying the date when I introduce the show. This is your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. Joining me across uh, this fair nation of ours, it's my land, it's your land, it's Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rich. I'm glad to be closing out the uh, spring edition of the Rundown and I'm looking forward to the uh, cockatoo days of summer to come. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself, so let's jump right into it. Tom, I know this is a issue. It's near and dear to both of our hearts uh, working uh, for Gestalt IT. It's a little keyboard kerfuffle. At least that's what the Chiron says. We're going to be talking about Apple uh, announcing a new service uh, program to replace keys on their 2015 and newer MacBooks and MacBook Pros. Basically, these keyboards are what I would like to refer to as hot garbage. And the keys get stuck all the time with a little bit of dust, uh, which kind of happens with keyboards quite a bit. Uh, Apple is now going to be replacing these. Unfortunately, due to the design, you basically have to replace the entire deck. Uh, you can't just replace little bits of them, but I guess that's Apple's problem, so who cares? Tom, I guess this is significant. Do you think this is Apple maybe trying to walk back uh, some of the design choices they made with the super svelte and USB-C abundant uh, MacBooks and MacBook Pros? So I, I feel like I need to say it here. It's about time. <laughs> um, yeah, this So this is a big problem for Apple because they tried this design on the MacBook, the 12-inch MacBook, and they didn't get any complaints. And I think that's because nobody bought a 12-inch MacBook. Uh, they, they just kind of looked at it like, uh, no, Tinker Toy, don't care. Um, I think that if they had put the, uh, the traditional, and I'll hold up my Magic Keyboard because I love it so much, if they had put the this keyboard on that laptop with just USB-C, I don't think anybody would have cared. This is the same problem with the headphone jack. This is Apple trying to race to the bottom to have the thinnest possible laptop that you can. Eventually, when we get to an OLED screen that's flexible and, and we have touch typing on glass or OLED screens, it's just going to be a laptop you can roll up and stick in your shirt pocket. But until we get to that point, we're going to have to deal with the fact that people use keyboards. I was on the fence about it. I really did like the keyboard the first few times that I used it. It had a decent tactical res tactile response, not tactical, because that'd be a different keyboard. Uh, <laughs> tactical would be the keyboard that I really and truly love, which is the IBM Model M, which clicks a lot, but unfortunately, someone would hit me with that keyboard if I tried to use it. Um, the problem though is, just like you said, Apple didn't test this thing and when i say test i mean have somebody come into the uh the apple design uh studio that johnny ive has built somewhere and just eat doritos in front of the keyboard because <laughs> that's really what's causing these problems um and i've tried everything i mean between myself and stephen foskett i think we've it, we've consumed at least 14 cans of air trying to blow out our keyboards uh, i've gotten really good at using guitar picks and business cards to slide under the space bar to get crumbs out um, it's ridiculous, and I'm literally on the verge of returning my MacBook to get the keyboard fixed, but again, like you said, I'm basically going to get the same keyboard, so it'll work for, what, another six months? I'm not, and you have to, It's they take a week to replace it, so I'm going to have to go a week without having a keyboard at all? Just uh, buy a Chromebook, and then you can swap it out uh, anytime you want. You just can't do any real work. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing for me is uh, I've... Uh, you know, we we all were a, a MacBook or an Apple shop here at Gestalt IT. I don't think there's any telling secrets out of school there. Um, 
so I use an external keyboard. I actually use a mechanical keyboard in the office, which really endears me to my coworkers. And so I, I really have not noticed this. I only really use it, you know, if I'm doing some work at night or at home or something like that, and or if I'm working from home uh, on the odd occasion. Um, so I hadn't really noticed the issue lately. I've been trying. I've been trying to reacquaint myself with the Touch Bar and give it a a honest go of using it. I've been very critical of it. So I wanted to actually like try and use it on a day to day basis. And I've already noticed that my six key is really uh, starting to not respond to me. So I'm looking forward to this as well. Um, Apple, it's about time. Tom, something a little nearer and dearer to your heart. Uh, we're starting to see WPA3 certification. The Wi-Fi Alliance began certifying uh, new devices with the security standard. Uh, we talked about this uh, when the standard was ratified a couple months ago, but basically it adds protections against brute force password attacks and does, uh, and, and it also provides for forward secrecy to limit older data access if security is actually compromised. Uh, is that a fair assessment of the standard, uh, Tom, the major features? It is a very fair assessment of the standard as it was released, which unfortunately, just like all standards, is an example of what happens when no one really gets what they want. Um, <laughs> the, the problem is, and I can I can speak now about this because the standard's been released, but two or three months ago, we got a really good inside look at what was going on in the WP, WPA3 working group. And they had some really aggressive ideas that I thought were really fascinating. And we're going to do a really good job of preventing a lot of the problems that we were seeing. But it all came down to one thing, IoT. So as it turns out that when you put some really aggressive protections into a protocol, that requires that the overhead needed to run the protocol goes up. And when you are trying to buy bargain basement chips and bargain basement Wi-Fi at the lowest possible cost because you're installing them in millions of devices, you don't want the cost per unit to go up because you're trying to process a much heavier weight protocol. So the IoT manufacturers basically stood their ground and said, we are not going to let you put all this stuff in the protocol because it would wreck our business because paying a penny more for a board would bankrupt us. And so what we got was a little more watered down version of this. So unfortunately, we're going to be fighting this fight again in about three years when all of these great protections get broken because a lot of people will point out, well, you know, WPA2 predates like windows xp almost well not yeah, quite 2000, that bad 2004 was the last time we had uh, a major update and so you you don't think it'll be quite that uh long of a time you you think we're going to see wpa4 uh within you know uh, a handful of years I, we won't have any other option because the difference between now and 2004 is the fact that we essentially have unlimited compute cycles in amazon so all of those huge elliptical curve compute problems that we've always been looking at for years are solvable in matter of, well, minutes effectively. Um, it's just a matter of how many minutes you're willing to spend and how much money you want to spend to break that problem. This gets into a broader question, though, but do you think because, you know, uh, the IoT is the kind of the lowest common denominator uh, in a lot of ways, and uh, we can, you know, to, uh, to use a metaphor, we can only move as fast as the slowest in the herd, mm -hmm. um, do you think that there is going to be, uh, maybe in the enterprise level, we're going to see um, either more dedicated, you know, IoT connection schemes, uh, dedicated routers uh, along those lines to kind of isolate that kind of sensor heavy traffic that might not necessarily, you know, in aggregate could be very damaging, but isn't the same as, you know, having your exchange server going over those pipes. Yeah, I think what you're probably going to end up seeing is just like today where we have guest traffic segregated from uh, internal traffic for things like PCI, we're going to see an IoT only network. It's going to have mm -hmm. the minimum connection set that we need, but it's not going to have any of the protections that we want. And that's going to be bounded by some kind of a firewall or security device. And then what we're going to end up having in the enterprise is a much more strict like WPA3 plus 
version that is kind of like WPA2 Enterprise, which uses certificates and a whole bunch of uh, eat, peep, cheap, jeep protocols um, <laughs> that are a uh, lot more robust when it comes to authenticating users. And those just don't work with IoT. And, uh, you know, I had seen some speculation, uh, one that, uh, you know, certification and rollout of this would be, it, it is not a huge technical deal. So we, we would actually see a, a lot of uptick of the new standard. Um, do you see something like, uh, you know, the upcoming release of like 802.11ax as something that will push that even faster as there's going to be another Wi-Fi refresh cycle? So why not put WPA3 on everything or... I don't think we're going to wait for AX. Um, security is important enough that we're going to push it out quickly. And like you said, because it's basically a software patch, it doesn't require um, new hardware to operate effectively. So what you'll see is <clears throat> the existing AC Wave 2 access points are going to get this. Uh, people are just going to start adopting it um, because this is a whole other topic for another show. But I don't necessarily <laughs> know that AX is going to get a huge upswell in installations for the next 18 months. All right. Uh, interesting news coming out of Google. They announced uh, they're going to be launching the beta uh, for cloud file store next month, essentially providing file services for cloud storage customers. The service will offer a premium tier for 30 cents a gigabyte, offering a guaranteed 700 megabits, uh, I'm sorry, megabytes per second and 30,000 IOPS, no matter your overall capacity. There's also a less expensive standard tier, uh, which only costs 20 cents per gigabyte, but doesn't guarantee that peak performance until you stored about 10 terabytes uh, of data. In fact, exactly 10 terabytes of data. Uh, so uh, what, what I thought was interesting about this one, I mean, this is an obvious uh, maturation perhaps of Google's uh, cloud and especially specifically their storage ambitions. But what's very interesting is we just saw um, NetApp release kind of a first party service or at least the beta for it um, for Google Cloud. They've also done it on Azure, AWS, uh, but they have their cloud volumes, which and its very base offers file services on top of which is all of the other NetAppy stuff, snapshots, more advanced data services. It doesn't sound like Google is necessarily competing for those data services. They're just like, here's file pointed at it. You don't need to run a file server, um, you know, locally or anything like this makes it easier. Uh, I, I do think, though, uh, interesting to see both of those announcements coming in basically, you know, consecutive months. That doesn't surprise me at all. First of all, NetApp would be the company that would come out with that because NetApp has historically been a file services company when you look at their hist their history. So that makes total sense to me. The fact that Google released it tells me that like they finally hit like the 5,000 and first person to ask for this. And they're like, okay, we hit enough. We can go ahead and <laughs> release this now because uh, I'm sure they've had it internally for a while. And it's just one of those things that they didn't want to talk about and they didn't care about until they got enough critical mass to move it. Um, Okay, it's file services. <laughs> I mean, does this open them up to, I, I, do you think this signals them moving into different markets? Obviously, Google right now very heavy in the AI ML cloud game, not necessarily going for the overall larger play like AWS or, you know, so uh, this seem, to me seems like a very micro, like a, a Azure competing kind of move, uh, at least, you know, it makes it a little friendlier for enterprises. Maybe. I don't even know if this is going to make a dent. I mean, we, we looked at this the other day. I mean, Google is a distant third in this race, and they're still doing better than everybody else behind them. So they're they're not moving a needle. They, what they're looking for is to capture that 0.001% of their customer base that said we needed this. All right. Next up. 
Some interesting news out of Qualcomm. Uh, we've seen some details coming out about the uh, Snapdragon 1000 system on a chip. Uh, it's designed in partnership with Microsoft for their Windows on ARM devices. This is going to be the successor to the just released, I believe, Snapdragon 850, which is, again, another de- kind of desktop or, or at least uh, uh, you know laptop kind of style chip, uh, kind of moving away from their traditional stronghold of uh, just purely mobile processors, uh, specifically phones. And it's designed really to compete directly against Intel U and Y low power processors, uh, like legit desktop chips. Uh, The 1000 SoC will use a total of 12 watts of power and be built on a seven nanometer process with a ARM Cortex A76 uh, architecture. It's uh, it's expected to offer similar performance to a U-series Intel Skylake CPU, which came out in 2017, and for reference uses about 15 watts of power uh, comes with integrated Intel graphics, nothing special there. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I think one of the other interesting things about this is you know, Qualcomm is no, uh, has some GPU uh, IP to really throw about, which could also be just as disruptive as having, you know, equivalent level performance on a core, uh, you know, on a compute core basis. Uh, the SOC will also include 802.11 AD gigabit Wi-Fi, uh, gigabit LTE, and a new power management controller. Tom, I'm not familiar with 802.11 AD. Is that a thing or am I, did I typo something? <laughs> No, you didn't typo anything. AD is actually, it's a short-range, high-speed Wi-Fi connectivity. Uh, It was originally designed to replace things like speaker cables. Um, So the good news is is that it has a lot of bandwidth. Bad news is is that it reaches about this far. (laughs) So this sounds to me an awful lot like someone is trying to create like a, a small form factor desktop. A um, mm-hmm. little, little heavier weight than your average IoT, but not like the the beastly things that are, you know, well, evidently now doing nothing but crypto mining. Um, this this is interesting because they're they're trying to break into a market that I think a lot of people are underserving right now. It's the 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 I, I call them grandma PCs. Um, they need to get on the internet. They need to be able to check Facebook and the kids' mail, and they don't necessarily need to be carted around the house like an iPad and charged all the time. They can just be plugged in and they have a nice big monitor with nice big text. Um, I don't know if this is going to work or not. Uh, more power to you if you can get this market off the ground. But I mean, we're starting to, as much as I hate to say it, we're starting to see the fracturing of people into laptops versus phones. Tablets kind of have a place, but if you can't make tablets work, I don't know how you're going to make this work. I mean, the the key here is, at least on a Windows on ARM situation, you're going to have a full browser. And I feel like that's the complete level set for any kind of insurgent platform. I mean, you look at Chrome OS is taking off. You can, you can, you know, I've joked earlier that you can't really do real work on it. You can do 90% of what people want to do on a laptop on a Chromebook, which is why, you know, they're, they're gaining market share and certainly taking over specific segments like education and stuff like that. What's interesting to me here is that we're now seeing super low power chips that aren't x86 finally getting to that good enough or approaching that good enough compute layer, which Intel has been at for like five, six years. And we're going to be talking kind of about the implications of that kind of in our next story. Um, But, you know, Qualcomm now hitting that good enough general purpose computing, run a real browser, run 10, 15 tabs, you know, going on there, throw in some interested, you know, integrated graphics IP, uh, some uh, LTE connectivity, which I think Intel can do. Intel can do that and has offered that on and off. I mean, not Intel, but, you know, OEMs using Intel platforms. I've done that on and off. The problem is that's an add-on that requires additional power draw. Qualcomm having this integrated in keeps it in that really tight thermal envelope, which is what you want for these thin and light kind of laptop tablet devices. Um, you know, certainly interesting. It's whether one, it's, I, I still don't 
I certainly don't trust, um, you know, Microsoft to necessarily hit this messaging out of the park. I still see people being confused about being like, oh, this laptop will run this app a little better, but it's the same price. And you get into that weird emulation space where it's, things are going to work until they don't. And then it's going to be the most infuriating thing ever. Um, that is more on Microsoft's problem. Qualcomm, though, I mean, they've been making, they, you know, they've been ramping up their chips basically since 2009, since, you know, smartphones came out. So I'm not surprised to see this. Interesting to see if it really will hit that performance parity. Right now, we're just kind of seeing rumors about that performance. I want to see those benchmarks. I want to see it in real use. I want to I want to load up some browser tabs and try and crash that bad boy. All right, and finally, I alluded to it. Uh, we're entering into the uh, post-Krasanich uh, world of Intel. Uh, just after our show last week, or I think uh, within 24 hours of it, uh, Intel announced that CEO Brian Krasanich uh, was departing the company after they discovered he had a consensual relationship with another employee and as part of a violation of their fraternization policy. Krasanich had been with Intel for over 35 years, including his run as CEO starting in 2013. CFO Bob Swan is taking over as interim CEO, I've, although I just saw a report from Bloomberg, I believe, that he has like definitively stated he has no desire to be the full-time Intel CEO. You know, he knows his place. It comes from a lot, mostly a history with eBay and just a relatively uh, recent Intel hire, or at least recent for Intel. Um, Tom, I, I'm kind of interested, though, outside of the way he departed the company, uh, what is the legacy for Krasanich's time as CEO of Intel? You know, one of the more influential uh, companies in not just enterprise, but in tech in general. Um, kind of to set this up from my perspective, on the one hand, uh, you know, looking at Intel stock price since he took over, basically doubled. Uh, stocks seem to be doing well. They've maintained their dominance in the x86 space. Yeah, we're starting to see a resurgent AMD really hitting the market. But if you want high-end compute, odds are 90% of the time you're going to be buying an Intel box. Uh, they've made giant acquisitions to really broaden the scope of the company with Altera and Mobileye of kind of getting the FPGA and into autonomous driving mach uh, machine uh, vision and that kind of market, spending a combined $30 billion on that. And the under Krasanich invested $300 million in diversity efforts uh, for an overall plan that was supposed to end in 2020. Uh, and, and I you know, in anecdotal kind of talking to people, it seems that Intel has succeeded in cultivating uh, you know, despite the way the CEO left, a culture that is one of the friendlier for women in tech. Anecdotal, admittedly, uh, you know, within my circles, but take that for what you will. Uh, on the other hand, ARM and NVIDIA are kind of eating Intel's lunch um, when it comes to new markets, uh, specifically talking about AI, ML, that, that kind of stuff, despite the Altera acquisition from Intel. And they just spun out their advanced wearable division, kind of signaling that they can't figure out a way to monetize that and take that going forward without a ton of R&D. So, Tom, Intel, it's, like I said, it seems like they've been at the good enough level for a number of years, they've struggled with some new uh, manufacturing tech. They've struggled to kind of, they've, they've fallen off the TikTok, TikTok bandwagon. Uh, it's TikTok, wait, 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 kind of a tick, wait, wait, wait. What is the, what does post-Krasanich Intel look like? You know, the funny thing is Intel has the same problem that every other large company that has gotten to that point does. We've, we've innovated the living daylights out of whatever it is that we make, whether it be a chip, whether it be Windows, whether it be the mainframe. Okay, now what do we do? Well, um, we got to make money somehow. Let's buy a whole bunch of stuff that supports that. In Intel's case, they bought a whole bunch of things that would need Intel processors. Great idea in theory, bad idea in execution. Because as it turns out, if you are a chip company, you know how you don't know how to do? Operate anything other than a chip company. And so look at what happened with McAfee. They bought the McAfee name. They rebranded it as Intel Security. 
and then what? They ended up spinning it back out as McAfee because it turns out it's really hard to do stuff that's not your core business. And so <laughs> they've got a problem because they, they've been making, well, let's just call it what it is. They've been making the Cadillac Escalade of chips forever. It's big, it's powerful, it's sexy. And if you want that, you're going to buy it. So they have people who bought it to be a Cadillac Escalade. And then they got people who bought it because, hey, it was the, the best thing there was. And then you've got the ARM people coming along. So they're making the Toyota Prius. It's a little more efficient, not quite as powerful, but for the two things that you need it for, works really well. And so they're getting their butts kicked because now people are like, well, I guess I don't need all this power. I, I, I suppose I can go over here and I can get an ARM chip. Let's be fair about this. If if the rumors are true and Apple is seriously considering dropping ARM cores inside of MacBooks starting in a couple of years, Intel's going to be in a world of hurt because that will prove once and for all for the entire world that we have moved past x86, that, that ARM will be good enough, as we alluded to earlier, and that it doesn't matter what kind of chips you have running in your system. Because remember, they've tried to differentiate. We can do virtualization. We can do hyper-threading. I mean, we were talking about AMD just a little bit ago. 32 cores, 64 cores. I've seen some of the new Ryzen stuff and the Threadripper stuff. And I'm just like, it's good enough. And it has way more cores. So that works better on, on software that's pipelined better. How did Intel miss that boat? Well, you know, it, it's, um, you know, kind of the loneliness of being at the top for so long, you know, inevitably, you kind of lose that competitive edge. I mean, I remember when the, you know, when they launched, um, uh, you know, post net burst architectures and the core two duo stuff. I mean, they were just pounding, you know, AMD had kind of been trading top spots for benchmarks or whatever. Um, and then it just seemed like they implemented that TikTok cycle, they were just hitting new processes all the time, they were releasing new architectures all the time. And we're really just it seemed like every year either doubling performance or having the power that they needed to use to hit that performance. And AMD just had no place to the point where Intel real, I mean, substantially from my opinion, I'm sure there, there are definite technical advances, but really the difference between a fourth gen, you know, Intel core I seven and a seventh or eighth gen core I seven, you don't need to upgrade probably unless you have some very specific needs. Um, so that gave, you know, AMD and, uh, uh, arm, uh, based processors, you know, time to either for, for arm to ramp up performance per watt where Intel has historically always struggled. Um, and then, you know, AMD just to basically go clean sheet with Ryzen and come up with, you know, a pretty compelling way to just throw a bunch of cores at something, even if they're not most efficient, you know, per clock cycle. I, I think, you know, you would bring up the example of cars. Actually, this, this kind of reminds me of innovation surrounding, you know, the gasoline engine, right? Intel is, you know, the big three. When Intel first came along, very rudimentary processors, gas cars, very rudimentary, very clumsy. You could argue the turn of the century that electric cars or, you know, other alternatives were perhaps the technology going forward. They did huge, both did huge amounts of innovation to get it to this to to get it to it like a fixed product that's amazing that gets that's very efficient for what it is the problem is now you know arm is coming along or or i guess nvidia is probably the tesla example right they also have a product named tesla which makes it a very easy way to go about that whereas you know intel can can match that performance you know in in certain specific ways but it fundamentally they're they're reaching the limits of what x86 can be with what a general purpose 
you know, CPU can be to a number of levels. And the fact that, you know, they just can't get those transistors any smaller. It, I mean, it seems to just be a, a genuinely bedeviling issue for them. It is. They basically, like you said, they have innovated the living daylights out of the internal combustion engine. It can run, uh, you know, 45 miles per gallon and it won't ever need an oil change. And it's, uh, it's the most compact thing you've ever done. And it's great until someone looks at you and goes, okay, now make it not run on gas. And they're like, <laughs> uh, we don't know how to do that. Because now do machine learning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the people who are coming along who are basically trying to fight their algorithms to get to that performance level at like revision two or three, and they still have ceiling left, that's where the real innovation is going to happen. So honestly, the only thing that can save Intel at this point is for them to go out and buy one of those ship companies. And I don't <laughs> see that happening. I mean, the the only good thing is Intel, if they if they take a step back in terms of market dominance, gives them the window to then acquire an ARM based company or or merge with you know someone that's a Qualcomm maybe or something like that. Not to say that that could possibly ever happen, but you know the the thing is they could never buy AM, like the joke was that they could never buy AMD uh, or or just buy them out or destroy them or they had to leave them around so that they wouldn't be an absolute monopoly. I don't right. think that's the case. I think they could make the argument by acquiring a major ARM chip producer that hey this is this is what everybody's using. No, but x86 is the way of the past. ARM is the way of the future. Or or by you know somebody with some some graphics IP. I, they've made some minor acquisitions with that. Nothing along the lines of like Mobileye or Altera. That I think could be the biggest acquisition in my mind. If they can leverage that. And to date, that acquisition has kind of stayed a little stale. I haven't seen a ton of updates from Intel from their FPGA stuff. Um, it could be that they're just waiting for the market to kind of ripen for, uh, you know, uh, to have a product that's ready to really hit super specific ML workloads or something like that. I think that could be a legitimate uh, way to kind of disrupt their the staid nature of the x86 market. But we shall see. Uh, certainly, whoever's going to be the next CEO. I mean, that's the thing to me is because of the way, obviously, Krizanich left very abruptly. I, I don't think the the turn the battleship mentality. It's not that Krizanich failed at that. It's just like they've you know they, they've kind of hit the T stage of turning the battleship around, and it's not the most exciting. You know, it's not the most exciting time for Intel. And we don't know if you know at this point the turn. We don't know if they're going to succeed or capsize. Um, obviously that's a little dramatic. Intel's not going anywhere anytime soon. They're a gigantic company. People are going to need server chips. People are going to buy x86 chips for years. It's just whether they can still maintain being the, the, the chip giant. Mm -hmm. That's the question. I think that's about it, Tom, for the Gestalt IT rundown. Did you have fun? Was it, was it good for you? Oh, I had a blast. I always love this. Well, if you enjoyed it, dear viewer, uh, Z, parenthesis S, uh, you can join us every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Facebook. We are here live. We also put it on the YouTubes. Uh, we throw it up everywhere. We have a podcast feed for this. Just search for the Gestalt IT Rundown in the information tunes or your podcatcher of choice, and you will find it. You can subscribe, listen to it at your leisure. We even put in a little pre and post music because it's a podcast and it's very easy to do. So... Uh, until then, Tom, where can people find more of your stuff? Well, you can head over to Twitter and find me at Networking Nerd, where I complain when Slack is down. And then you can head over to <laughs> gestaltit.com and read some of my writings. You can also find me writing at networkingnerd.net. Um, and I will be out in the cyberspace somewhere. 
And you can find me on Gestalt IT as well. In fact, uh, you can look, uh, maybe I'll reshare it on my Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. I wrote up about a, uh, a, pr- a private Slack that you can, an on-prem Slack that you can install called Mattermost a little while ago. I always like to reshare that whenever Slack goes down. Uh, not that I have a problem with Slack, but if you wanted to roll your own Slack, Mattermost is available and it's kind of cool, also kind of janky. Uh, so check that out, gestaltit.com, Mr. Anthropology on Twitter. Uh, until the next time we meet. Oh, and a reminder to everybody, before I do my sign-off, reminder, we have Storage Field Day going on right now in Boston. Uh, we have presentations for the rest of today and uh, all day Thursday. A lot of cool companies going on. I think Store One uh, was just presenting. And mm-hmm. uh, we've got a whole uh, host of companies, Infinidat, NetApp, uh, amongst others that I don't have in front of me right now. So check that out, uh, techfieldday.com, uh, for more for the full live stream there. And we'll have videos up uh, ASAP as well once those are edited. So until the next time we meet, remember everybody, have a super sparkly 